0: everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Progressive Bitcoiner. I'm your host Trey Walsh and today we have on the show a very special guest uh, and a conversation I think you all will be uh, really interested to hear with former Governor David Patterson. Now David Patterson is the first legally blind governor and the first African-American governor of New York and we have a lot of really good and rich conversation in this episode. We talk about his story growing up in Brooklyn and then becoming governor um, and then we talk about great financial crisis um, everything happening in new york at the time we talk about politics progressive politics and really this episode was a breath of fresh air hearing from a progressive politician and someone who's still a member of the democratic party but being open to bitcoin and open to new technologies that can help the world so this was a really refreshing conversation and one that i hope we can replicate with other um politicians and other folks from the left who may not be outright dismissive of bitcoin but are open and just need to hear and learn more about it so i really appreciate the governor coming on and having this conversation and i think many of you will be very pleasantly surprised um with this conversation and i'm hoping to have more conversations like this in the future and huge shout out to daniel from my team who made the connection to the governor's team and made this conversation happen I'm really grateful for this and hope you all enjoy the conversation. And if you have any feedback or any thoughts on the conversation or any questions, please feel free to reach out uh, reach out to me at hello at ProgressiveBitcoiner.com. And as usual, we have our promo links in the show notes as well for Bitbox, SAS Mining, and Jason Myers' book, A Progressive's Case for Bitcoin through Bitcoin Magazine. A huge shout out to our sponsors and supporters and to all of you for listening. Um, again, I hope you really enjoy this conversation and we will see you again next week. Hi, Governor Patterson. Welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here, Trey.
0: Yeah, uh, this is so for for folks listening, this is a bit of a different interview so far, but I'm I'm really, really excited um, and really honored to have you on and appreciate you accepting the invite um, and coming on the show. And I think there's so many different things we could talk about here. I mean, we are a Bitcoin podcast. We focus on that and you know, we'll talk a little bit about that as well, obviously. And one of our real focuses is targeting progressives, folks on the left when talking about Bitcoin. But I also think it branches out to talking about any new type of technologies, any new new things. Right. And there's and with Bitcoin specifically, and I'm not sure if you know or not as much detail. There's been a lot of hesitation and a lot of pushback from The left, Um, Elizabeth Warren being a huge voice uh, on the left, and I'm here in Massachusetts myself, so she's one of my senators, providing huge pushback uh, against Bitcoin for for multiple multiple reasons. So one of the things we try to do on this podcast is, you know, we're not talking to only progressives or only Bitcoin supporters, right? But talking to folks like yourself, I think you have a lot of intimate knowledge and detail of, you know, the Great Recession, for instance, and and your role as governor during that time, which I think will be really fascinating to get into a little bit. We talk to people who are Bitcoin proponents. We talk to environmentalists. We talk to humanitarians, a lot of folks that really care about progressive values. So that's kind of the focus and aim of this podcast. And so having yourself on, I was really excited um, to be able to chat with you. And I think first I wanted to, to jump in and maybe if you want to provide a little bit of context, right? I think most people listening will will know who you are, some with varying degrees of detail and things like that. But if you want to provide a little context to who you are, um, some of the things you're doing these days, but maybe give a little background for for folks listening.
1: So I was born in Brooklyn, New York, uh, many years ago. And uh, when I was school age, my parents were told that the New York City public school system at the time would not put a disabled student in the classroom with the other students. I am legally blind in the right eye, totally blind in the left eye. And uh, my mother was a third grade teacher in Queens, New York, who really focused her whole life on the education of children. And she thought that this was a terrible situation to put me in. So she went to Westchester, uh, the um, uh, county north of, uh, of New York, and she went to, at one point, Connecticut. She went out of state. And then she went to Long Island and in a a village of Hempstead, New York, which was in the town of Hempstead in Long Island, had started to assimilate the disabled students into the classes with the other students. And that was uh, their invitation to her, that if she moved the family to Hempstead, that they would take me into class. So she did that. My father was trying to start a political career in uh, New York City at the time, He got moved to Hempstead with the rest of us. So you can see he was running the show in that relationship. And we were, um, that's where I grew up. And and I think without that opportunity to have been educated alongside of, you know, regularly sighted students, there were many programs I was in that involved other blind students. But I don't know that they got the interaction that they would get once they finished college and went out into the working world or um, into the social world. And I was able to actually get that. So it really was a an opportunity for me. Um, I went on to Columbia University and uh, Hofstra Law School. I was a prosecutor in the Queens DA's office for a while. And then in a rather completely coincidental situation, I went to speak for a candidate who didn't like the group that uh, had invited him to speak. So he sent me. So rather than insulting him, they insulted me all night. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm 30 years old at the time. And, you know, that's a decent age, but I'd never been castigated (laughs) so much. Uh, And finally, the person who convened the meeting said to me, listen, um, please don't take this personally. This is intended for the candidate. You just go back and tell them the next time we have a meeting he better be here. And I said, I'll, I'll do that. And then this woman in the, but she had to be in the first row or something. She waved her hand. Um, She was close enough that even I could see her. And she said, um, well, I have one more question. And she had asked me three questions previously and was dissatisfied with all of the answers. So I didn't see why we had to go through this charade a fourth time, but I consented and, uh, She said, I'm not voting for your candidate because he didn't have any respect for us to come and talk to us. I said, that's your prerogative, ma'am. And then this woman changes my life. Like, you never know when your life is going to change or who's going to change it. And she said, but you know something, I'll say something to you. I like the way you sat there for an hour and a half and were insulted at times and badgered at times and mistreated, quite frankly. But you answered the questions and didn't get into any acrimony with any of the people who had a right to ask the questions. So I think one day maybe you'll run for office. And when you do, I'm going to help you. And she clapped. And then all the people there clapped. And I don't know what to do. (laughs) It was quite a moment. And then coincidentally, Trey, three months later, our local state senator passed away. Now, he had been ill, but that wasn't known to that many people. So it was like a free for who's going to run for the seat. And there's always gossip about who was going to run. And then an older man who was a friend of my father's who, you know, they worked in politics together, said to me, would you think about running for that seat? Because if you do, I'll give you a thousand dollars. And in 1985, that was a lot of money. (laughs) And uh, I uh, said to him, well, you know, I've got to go uh, pass the bar exam. And he got a little indignant. He said, "By the time you pass the bar exam, the position will no longer be available." I mean, he was not happy. So now I'm running for office, and uh, he said, "You won't win, but I think when people see some see you, it's going to lead to something. People are going to see something in you." And that was a very um, touching comment. And you know, I didn't. Uh, I took it seriously and and didn't you know over hype it, you know, to my advantage. It was just something for me to know. And so I did run for the office. And the only thing that he got wrong is that I did win. (laughs) Mm. That's amazing.
0: That's a great backstory. So, um, I mean, obviously a lot of your, your story and we'll, we'll, you know, touch on your, your book as well. And more of your career is, uh, adversity. Uh, you've made a lot of history, um, throughout your lifetime. Um, and, and, one of the other things I want to talk about too, you know, especially obviously in context of this, this podcast is not only are you overcoming adversity to get into this position and ultimately to, to governor of New York. Um, but then you're stepping into office office on the back of a, a great crisis, um, in New York, whether it's personally with other you know politicians previously, the previous governor, obviously in scandals, and then also into the great recession. So, can we touch on that a little bit? Coming into office and just from a a human perspective, coming in in the wake of all of this, what, what were some of the things that were going through your mind? How were you keeping yourself going into work day in and day out um, with with these crises popping up, right? And then going into the Great Recession. What, what was that like for you first and foremost, just being a person in, in that position?
1: Well, 17 years after I got into the, New York State Senate, I was elected as the minority leader of the Senate because the Democrats, which I'm a Democrat, there were fewer of us than Republicans. So the Republicans had the majority leader that controls the budget and makes all the relevant decisions. And the minority leader is uh, elected by the uh, the group that has lesser votes to represent them in leadership meetings with the other leaders and the governor. So... Um, but in 2006, Elliot Spitzer, who was the attorney general of New York, asked me if I would run as his running mate for a lieutenant governor. Now, uh, as I've always said, lieutenant governor's job is to wake up at 630 in the morning and call the governor's mansion. If the governor answers, your job is done for the day. So I wasn't particularly interested in accepting this office except for the fact that my father had run for lieutenant governor in 1970 and he won the primary, but he and his, uh, uh, he uh, and his partner, uh, Arthur Goldberg, who had been a uh, ambassador to the United Nations, they were beaten by um, Governor Nelson Rockefeller. The Rockefellers had more money than the Goldbergs or the Pattersons and they spent a lot of it to win that race. So, It would have been kind of symbolic if I could have come back and won this position later on. But the reason I turned Spitzer down was I told him uh, in a couple of years, I'm going to be the majority leader of the Senate, which really is the second most powerful uh, elected official in New York. So I don't see why I would give that up to, you know, basically, you know, walk around and and hold your coat for you while you're speaking. So he was um, quite uh, impressed with that and said he wanted to think about it. And he came back a couple of days later and he said, what we'll do is we'll enhance the lieutenant governor position. I'll give you five areas of government that you will basically, um, you know, I'm still the governor. I make the final decision, but you can basically uh, be in charge of the effort that we make in these particular areas, such as establishing equal opportunities for minority and women owned businesses, fighting domestic violence. Um, issues with stem cell research, which was very popular at the time, and a couple of other issues. And so I accepted this. Now I become lieutenant governor. And in the first year, the governor had me in on all of the relevant meetings. I was very much a part of the team. But in the second year, with the onset of the recession coming, I had disagreed a number of times in these meetings about how much spending we were going to have in, in the budget. They were going to have an increase in spending by 5.6% when we're about to go into uh, a huge deficit. And I think the reason that the governor wanted to do that is in his first year, he had managed to alienate just about every other legislator in Albany and the leaders. And I think he was looking for, he had, you know, kind of recognized that and was looking for a way to kind of bring the group back together. And the, um, Democrats in the assembly in particular wanted an increase in the spending. And interestingly, the Republicans in the Senate did, too. And their way of trying to make it happen was to say that the governor had mispredicted the revenues that were coming in. There were no revenues coming in, but that was their argument to say that we can increase spending. So um, in the second year, after a couple of months, I wasn't really invited to too many of these meetings So when the call came to me that the governor was going to have to resign and now you'll be the governor, I was way behind where the budget process was. And that was a frightening situation for me. And so what I did was I invited the two legislative leaders, the majority leader of the Senate and the Speaker of the Assembly, to work the budget out themselves. And then I would come in and, you know, take a look and see if... uh, I, we could, uh, uh, you know, improve upon what they did. And we were able to pass the budget um, almost on time, which it really had never been passed on time in about over, over 20 years. So that gave me a real boost because it filled the void of um, leadership in the state since the governor had resigned and it also filled the void of what we were going to do about the deficits because we did cut significantly in, in that budget. But the problem was, as the year went on, the out-year budget gap, meaning you've paid all the bills for last year, but now your debt for next year is skyrocketing. It was uh, projected as high as five billion or $10 billion. In the end, it was $21.3 billion. That was the highest Mm -hmm. escalation of a fiscal deficit experienced by any state in the history of the United States and who got to be in charge of trying to fix it all. And, uh, but we were able to, um, make the necessary cuts. And unfortunately we had to tax some of New York's wealthiest, um, residents to do it. But, uh, uh, by 2009, we started to get it more on the right track. But personally, it was um, uh, it, it it was very difficult because I was in uncharted territory. I had not had that much experience with how budgets are put together and how they work. And though my two legislative colleagues did have that experience, their own interests. Arising from how their members in the Senate and Assembly felt, were obfuscating some of the progress that we were trying to make at times, and that led to some rather um, remarkable differences of opinion. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you um, do you think much at all in terms of you know the details of the Great Recession, um, the way things came about, and you know one thing that we advocate for Bitcoin, you know one of the ways that the reasons Bitcoin came about and was created in the first place was in the wake of the Great Recession. So seeing time and time again, right, that this could happen again, seeing how banks operated, right? And and a lot of rules were instituted after this, of course, which is, I think, the irony of Elizabeth Boring being very, very vocal about some of these banking rules um, and then being so vehemently against Bitcoin, which can be a tool for sound money, can be a tool that potentially helps curb some of these things right so so for you i've heard you speak publicly a little bit on crypto blockchain so we advocate for for bitcoin here obviously but what are what are your thoughts in terms of bitcoin in terms of blockchain in terms of of crypto and things like that
1: well my thoughts are that it was uh incomprehensible the Way in which these major uh, banks, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, um, you know, just um, uh, having their their uh, value uh, reduced to two dollars, uh, as it was for uh, some of them, uh, most of them having to receive some kind of rescue from the federal government. AIG, which in September of 2008 tried to access $20 billion from its subsidiaries to keep it from going out of business. And believe it or not, Trey, the federal government under President Bush didn't want to do it. And um, and this was a moment that I'll never forget because uh, they have a National Governors Association. It's a great organization. You learn a lot about how other uh, executives manage their states and different points of view. And and the Republicans and the Democrats actually work together in that organization, which is great. And uh, uh, a governor by the name of Jim Doyle from Wisconsin, he had come up to me and he seemed to be, I got like 10 or 15 years older than me. And he said, you know, as you're just starting out, if you ever want to ask a question and you know, you're not really sure who you want to ask. Feel free. Just give me a ring. And so in this bureau in uh, 2008, and and uh, AIG is asking our uh, office to allow them to um, to, to activate the, the uh, resources from their subsidiaries, I get a call from Governor Doyle. And I thought, good, he can help me figure this out maybe. And uh, he says, Governor, uh, we have an insurance company called Travel Guard Insurance. It operates in Stevens Point, Wisconsin. It is the biggest bondholder in the state of Wisconsin. If AIG goes down, so will the state of Wisconsin. And we haven't had a state go into default since Arizona did in 1929. And I don't want to be the governor of the next state to have that problem. So I said, Well, Governor Doyle, um, if you. Uh, are having this problem. You told me I could ask you any question as dumb as it might be. And he said, sure, go ahead. I said, what are you calling me for? (laughs) He Mm. said to me, because we've been trying to talk to the secretary of the treasury and he isn't returning our phone calls. And I said, what will make you think that he'll return mine? He said, because you're from New York. And New York is the pivotal state in terms of this financial crisis. And that's the first time somebody had said that to me. And he said, they have to return your phone call. And you know what? They did. And when I spoke to um, uh, Hank Paulson, who was the uh, uh, Secretary of the Treasury, he um, said to me, I, I just think it's funny that a Democrat is calling up here to tell me and basically that a company is too big to fail. I said, well, you know, this is the first time for everything. (laughs) And and next day, they gave gave AIG uh, $60 billion. Mm -hmm. And then they called and said, by the way, uh, President Bush, since we've done this, would like you to get up and congratulate him for doing this when this is over. And uh, I shrugged, but I did it. I had the press conference and I, I... congratulated them. So what I'm sort of saying is that um, that was when I learned how sensitive the market is and how um, uh, decisions that are made can impact millions of people. And so that was when I, you know, there was no uh, Bitcoin or blockchain or anything like that. But I thought there's got to be a better way. Someone's yeah. got to think of a of a of a different way to handle these problems. And if things are not going right, they shouldn't just pop up out of nowhere like we just had with a couple of banks. Uh, just in the last few months, where all of a sudden, uh, they're rolling along. And then all of a sudden, you're looking to make sure you don't have more money in the bank than the FDIC will give you if they go under. And I did have money in one of those banks and fortunately was able to move it but uh but the the I think that the surviving um uh, heads of these companies uh have other than the fact that we got through the uh recession but I didn't hear any creativity about how we might present prevent that again, so when um my uh, dear friend Simon Mill started to tell me about Bitcoin and how it worked and blockchain. And believe me, no matter how many times he tells me, I still think I don't totally understand. But it's an alternative. And it should be examined in the marketplace the same way any other industry would, would be examined. And But what I sense was almost an immediate desire to destroy and completely uh, obliterate uh, new concepts and new ideas. And that is the worst thing that we could ever do in this country. Our country, maybe the greatest country in the world, was founded on the basis of individualism and people going out and doing what they think was right. And throughout the centuries... There have been uh, women and men who've taken first steps down new roads, sometimes armed with nothing but their own vision. But that's what's made this country great. Um, Educationally, one of the reasons we're so great is that the states of New York and Massachusetts at the turn of the 19th to 20th century, they mandated that in any community where there were more than 500 people, there had to be a high school. And at that time, there were not that many Americans that ever really graduated Hempstead, uh, high school. And um, by 1960, which was about 65 years later after these first states did this, the United States graduated 60% of the children that uh, went to high school. The country following us was Great Britain with 9%. So when you wonder you know, um, where the discovery of how to make an atom bomb came from or where uh, the discovery of, uh, of um, uh, television or whatever was the uh, discovery, the reason it came from the United States was because the United States were, was educating its, its children much better than any of the other countries. That's not the same now. And part of it, it's because of this derision where no one ever really takes the time to examine thought. And I was a little surprised to hear uh, how much a contrarian uh, Senator Warren is, because I thought this would be something that she would find interesting. And if she doesn't find it interesting, is she saying that she thinks the current system is effective? Because I don't think it is. Mm.
0: Yeah, and I think... I mean, that's really valuable, but I think for me personally, too, just you you said several things in there, but one of them, for instance, mayor or uh, governors working together, right? State decision-making is very different than federal decision-making and politicking, right? So at, at a state level, you're running budgets a little differently than the federal government, right? You're having to balance things quite a lot differently than the federal government. You're having to pay bills in different ways and do different things. Like you said, like you're executives of states. That's very different than thinking through the federal government. So I think just with what you've said, these practical solutions, so you're saying, okay, there was this crisis, it, it seems to keep happening, what, you know, varying degrees of severity. This could be an alternative way of looking at it or let's put it out there for people to examine. I think that's a great first step that I wish all politicians, all executives, all founders, companies, banks, whatever, would start with. Because I, I think that's really, really wise and valuable. And it's been politic way too much. And one thing I tell people about Bitcoin, I don't say go out and buy Bitcoin or go out and, you know, throw money into it right away or this. And this. I say, learn about it. Learn about why it was created. Learn about some of these other problems that we have. Right. Learn about money. Learn about the economy. Learn about, you know, the Great Recession, things like this. And then examine that. And that's a good, good starting point that so many people aren't willing to, to start with. But just from your view, why do you think there's been that level of attack? um, that we haven't really seen against any other industry, maybe like, you know, tobacco and other things that are kind of proven health-wise pretty bad for folks. Right. But, um, why do you think there's been such a vicious attack or, or disregard uh, for it in general?
1: Well, what I was saying previously is that the reason is that it's historic, that this is how people, uh, originally addressed change in fear and condemnation. And this is why the gallant individuals throughout, uh, history, the reason we celebrate them so much is because they dared to go against established rule and, and challenge the societies in which they lived to do something that would be creative and new and better than what they had before. Now, that's not the easiest thing to do, and, and that's why we uh, honor them so much. But at the same time, we never seem to learn from them, as if, you know, maybe the next time something comes up, maybe I should uh, think about it a little more before um, uh, n- rendering a decision and then uh, being, uh, you know, in, 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 a, in a situation as it's been so many times in history where every thought was opposed, every invention was denounced. And, mm-hmm. and so uh, uh, people like yourselves have had to fight and suffer, and some of them probably just in the end walked away. But for those who stood the course, um, they won. And I think that is the definition of freedom in a country, that you can do that.
0: Yeah, and you're right too about what you said about Elizabeth Warren. It is, I think some people in the Bitcoin space have gotten really comfortable saying, ah, oh, Elizabeth Warren, she she hates this, always will. But taking a step back, you're right. Uh, someone like an Elizabeth Warren for what she has historically fought for, um, policy-wise, as a professor, some of the, you know, personal things she said on the campaign trail. It is kind of interesting that that she would completely disregard this because a lot of people that are most people that are really into Bitcoin and you know whether it's hosting podcasts or writing books or out there talking to people is because we, we've seen um, wealth inequality, right? We've seen the Occupy movement and the spirit behind that. We've seen recessions. Um, we've seen totalitarian governments where they have hyperinflation overnight and then people's wealth is evaporated overnight and they don't have any way to hold their wealth. So these are the reasons you know, we're here and talk about these things, not because we want to get rich, not because of any of these other, these other things that are um put onto Bitcoin. So with with that, um, politicians like Elizabeth Warren, quite frankly, aren't listening. And then a lot of people in the country, I think, just don't know a lot about it yet, which is a fine place to start, right? <laughs> not knowing about it, maybe learn some stuff about it. And some people have taken the position that it's just outright bad. Um, it, it's just a bad thing. But it's also like looking to history, like you said. What other technologies that are around today that we just take for granted had the same fate? I mean, there's hysterical ads about electricity when it first came out and first was first invented, power lines, and the dangers of all of this, right? And now it's like that's that's ridiculous to think about, um, but maybe it made sense at the time to be a little skeptical of. So I think you are spot on in terms of um, Senator Warren and the confusion there. I, mean, uh, I, I think too that might segue to. My other point is, you know, in your experience, you you also, you know, served of the head of the Democratic Party in the state of New York, correct? Yes. So from, you know, your your experience with that and just looking at the Democratic Party, looking at our political polarization that a lot of people like to talk about a lot. Um what do you think got us there from from your time in office, your time as the party leader? and what you see of, you know, I'm, you know, myself a, a progressive and have different views and struggling views about the party today. Um, but from, you know, being on the Democrat side, being from the left, how do you view the party today? What do you view as some of the the challenges and some of the things that the, the party is, is falling short on?
1: Well, I think that um, years ago, though there were, you know, extensive battles and disagreements and um, factions within the Democratic party there was a sense of of unity so that even when third party candidates or uh, uh, people who had been in the Democratic primary and lost and maybe they weren't too happy with who was the winner there was this consensus that in the general election you come together and you and you work together now, that doesn't seem to be uh, the, the cause these days. It just seems to, um, th- 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 there isn't a an understanding that these primaries or, you know, these special elections are designed to find the best candidates that we can. And um, though we're, though we have, you know, kind of done that in the past, now it seems to be a little different. Um, The candidates are far more ideological. They don't talk as much about how they're going to help New New York City's public school system, say. Uh, Now they're talking about, um, you know, uh, uh, foreign affairs, which don't necessarily... Uh, affect the constituency. But uh, many of them have gained some traction doing that. And not everything they say is wrong. But the sort of respect for people um, who may have a different point of view uh, seems to be reminding me more of the inter-party struggles rather than the intra-party struggles. Uh, We'll always be kind of fighting with the Republicans that's what you know makes a two-party system work but um, but I think that the that, that the ability of uh, Democrats to communicate with each other uh, seems less and less there is a Democratic Congress m- member who um, there's a, a African-American uh, kid whose family I know lives in his district. And he wants to go to the military academy at West Point. And to do that, you have to have a letter from your congressperson's office. Mm. Well, they weren't returning the family's phone call. So I called there. They didn't return my phone call. And um, and he has no idea what I'm calling about. And I think that's outrageous. And, you know, I'll you protect think you would- his privacy by not saying his name. Sure. but His initials are Jamal Bowman. Yeah.
0: Do you do you think that was about the content of the call or do you think that was just like a uh I've got I've got other more important things to focus on I, and I'm you know wasn't able to get back to that call or something
1: Well I mean I would suggest that you know maybe one day this person might aspire beyond the house of representatives and might want to run for the US Senate or something like that and you know I'm still one of the party leaders in in New York state uh he'll be calling me that's when I'll remind him of what happened Years before, no, I think it's um, uh, that I have uh, felt that Democrats have not embraced the issue of crime in New York City. They look at the statistics, and they're not getting why there's so much fear and trepidation on the part of the public. And I'll explain it to you right now why there is. Thirty years ago, we had nearly two thousand murders in New York city, uh, every year. So seven people on average, um, uh, a day were being killed in, in the city. And, uh, that's outrageous. Even at the high point of a crime wave, that's probably existed from the middle of the pandemic to recently when the crime numbers have started to fall never came close to the numbers 30, 35 years ago. Why is that? Because crime in the 80s was about drug dealing, crack, and gang wars over drugs. And they went on in East Harlem. They went on in uh, parts of Central Harlem. They went on in the South Bronx, South Jamaica, and Bedford-Stuyvesant, and Ocean Hill, Brownsville, in Brooklyn. Now, these areas, if you avoided them, you were avoiding where most of the casualties from violence were arising. It's different now. The head of the State University of New York got mugged on 74th Street between Park Avenue and Lexington Avenue in uh at 2.30 in the afternoon a few months ago. You couldn't have been in a safer part of the city. A man got shot and killed in a restaurant at 61st Street and Park Avenue back in uh, 2021. Mayor Adams went to dinner there the next night to try to show the public that this was, uh, you know, uh, uh, an extraordinary situation. It doesn't happen every day. But it is happening every day uh, where people are you know, witnessing crimes that, you know, uh, in places that were always considered to be safe before that. Once you have that fear, it's going to take, you can't just get up and say, yeah, crime, gun, uh, uh, crimes with guns is down 25%, murders is down 30%, but we're, 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 we're doing great. No, we're not doing great. We are reversing the situation. But sometimes you've got to maintain the understanding that it's going to take a while to sink in. Eventually, if crime really goes down, people will get it, but they're not going to get it just because you have some statistics about something that went on in the last three months. Now, because I have talked about that, I've uh, undergone some, um, you know, uh, derisive responses. But the fact is that I'm telling the truth. This is actually what's going on. And um, I'm certainly open to suggestion about why what I'm saying might be wrong, but I haven't heard it. It's more that you're not supposed to talk about that. That's the Republican issue. Well, that's why the Republicans almost beat the governor last year, because actually if they had one other issue other than that, they would have beaten her. And I think she's learned the lesson and has really turned the tide and Uh, really taken hold of that office. She is the only governor of New York that had to run for office the same year she was elected, but given a little space, we're seeing, uh, you know, great work from her. But the point Mm -hmm. is that in the Democratic Party, there should be room for my point of view, which may not be as progressive on the crime issue. There are others uh, that are, but that shouldn't be the one issue that now makes you... uh, a non-entity where you used to be a revered leader.
0: Yeah, what so some of my personal thoughts on this revolve around whether it's you know term limits changing the incentives of you know running for elections campaign finance all of these things are huge huge major issues that people can debate about. But why do you think it's such a challenge for politicians from whatever party but we'll talk democrat right now. To be honest about certain issues? Does it just take a few people starting to be honest about pick whatever issue it is that they're like, well, let me just stay away from this because it could be interpreted this way or could come off this way in a little clip or, a, or an ad or a campaign speech? And, um, you know, what would incentivize people to, as you said, I'm just talking about the truth. I'm open to suggestions because I think, personally, I think voters would really enjoy that if a politician comes in and says, I was wrong or I made a mistake or hey, this is an issue, I'm open to suggestions. But we don't see that time and time again, even though people in the populace tend to say, we want more authenticity, we want more truth, whatever it is, how do, how do we incentivize politicians to run on campaigns like that or to act like that in office?
1: Well, I saw a film clip about two or three months ago that I had never seen before. It was from 2008 and it was the first month, first month I was in office. And it was on the David Letterman show. And he got up and he says, you know, they have this new governor in New York, uh, David Patterson. And you ask uh, your politicians, you know, to be honest and uh, admit to their shortcomings. He says, this guy admits to everything. And he went through all of these admissions that I made when I became governor, answers to questions that, you know, um, uh, you know arose. And I answered them honestly. And um, that's how I've always tried to do that. I don't really know what is the reason that um, people seem to think if you acknowledge that there, we're not even talking about what the crime rate is, if you acknowledge that there is a pretty strong fear about crime in the city right now that wasn't there before the pandemic, that for some reason you're supporting uh, measures to incarcerate people longer, uh, reinstall reinstate the death penalty. And no one said that. It's just that there is that fear. And one of the ways to try to respond to it is to have a strong law enforcement presence, which I think Mayor Adams has done in the subways. I mean, I've been in the subways and I've noticed it. Um, and that's what starts to dial the clock back. But you know, when you do it and you see progress in two weeks, you can't jump up and celebrate it You just have to recognize that over time, uh, the public gets it, the public gets it. Um, uh, you almost have to think of the public as geniuses because they come to certain conclusions that may surprise you in elections, but they probably had a good reason for
0: it. Looking back on, on your time as governor or at the state, do you think those same principles can be applied to federal elections? Or do you think it's just comparing apples and oranges and it's and it's really hard to do that?
1: Well, um, the way elections are run, they're pretty much the same in, in the federal government than uh, as it is in, in the state. Um if you run for Congress in the federal government, you don't actually have to live in the state until you win. And that's how, uh, Robert F. Kennedy was able to win the Senate seat in New York. Um, the year after his brother was assassinated, he had never lived in New York. He moved in as he was running. Um, you know, they have different rules, but I think in the, uh, in the, uh, federal system, We have to be really careful because what we saw in the last federal election in 2020 was some really frightening and disturbing conduct on the part of people who thought the election they thought was stolen, it was fixed, you know, all these different things. This election wasn't close. Now, if uh, Richard Nixon had wanted to jump up and down like that in 1960, he may have had a real good point. He lost the election in one state, Illinois and he kind of thought that the Democratic leadership from Chicago and all around Illinois found a way to beat him. Um, Certainly Al Gore, who ran in 2000, he lost the election in one state, Florida. And and it was very, very close. And he was the vice president at the time. Uh, I guess President uh, Trump, uh, if, if he'd been a Republican, would have told him, uh, not to accept the results of uh, you know uh, uh, tens of millions of people voting on that particular day. Uh, so I just think that we have to maintain uh, a sacred and honest way of, of running elections and can't cave in to just uh, acrimony coming from those who um, pretend that they were wronged When they just couldn't accept that they lost,
0: right, right. You you mentioned, and I want to bring him up as well because he's gotten a lot of popularity. Um, uh, Unfortunately, you know, Bitcoin is an open, neutral technology, right? It's not a an arm of a political party, right? I think there's, and the reason I'm so adamant about the reason we do this podcast in general is because those on the right, and particularly libertarians in the U.S. context, really try to own the Bitcoin narrative as something that, oh, it's, it's right wing, like Ted Cruz is a big proponent. So, you know, people associate it with the right or Republican or, or whatever. You know, so we have this podcast to that say that's not actually true, but we're not trying to say you have to be a Democrat or a progressive to be into Bitcoin either, right? We're trying to say there's not a lot of diverse thought in media and things written about it. So we want to come in and talk about it from, from this left view. So most of the candidates that are currently running, if they do talk about Bitcoin, tend to be those from the right. I personally think they're using it as a just a, a ploy or a campaign message to try to get votes, right? But one such who's running from the left, but I know a lot of progressives and those from the left have a lot of issue with him as a candidate, uh, coming in as an outsider, coming in very opposed to the Biden administration, a lot of other things, is Robert Kennedy Jr. So I wanted to get your thoughts on his campaign uh, and him as a candidate. And feel free to be as, as honest and candid as you'd like. He's an asshole. <laughs>
1: He is. Um, uh, I've now read in two different articles that he said that in 2008, after uh, Hillary Clinton accepted. President Obama's invitation to be her secretary of state, that I offered him the United States Senate seat because I would pick the if, if a senator dies or leaves office the governor replaces that, he and that was that,
0: that was Gillibrand instead right Yes was that yes but,
1: okay okay but his sister Caroline Kennedy had expressed an interest had been interviewed um, uh, on you know television shows and at one point was seeking that particular seat. she was the person I spoke to not him and uh but now we have some revisionist history where he says that that happened uh he he has uh always been uh, worked very hard on the environment when he's younger but more and more has become enchanted with these theories and accusations against uh, the um uh Eskenazi Jewish community and the Chinese about um perhaps knowing in advance that there was going to be a, a COVID-19 virus. He gets about 20% in a head-on, um, uh, you know, poll against President Biden. But that's because there are probably 20 to 25% of people in the Democratic Party that would wish that the president would not run for re-election. And um, I don't think that, it, that it's any embrace of these uh, topics and issues that, that he talks about. And then, uh, as I've just pointed out, the fallacious references to the fact that he could have been a United States senator, um, which if he had been, it would have been in someone else's administration because I picked Kirsten Gillibrand. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I one of the, the fears I have as well is you know, someone coming in and he's probably one one of the more outspoken candidates about understanding Bitcoin, holding it himself. I think recently, just a couple of weeks ago, um, well, he disclosed that he had bought some for his children and grandchildren to kind of inherit. So all of these things are are, are great. I, I, think, I think that's good, right? But more and more people from the left, people wherever might see him, uh, as you're saying, you know, some of these stories and things that he's saying are really off-putting to a lot of people, whether it's his vaccine claims, whether it's uh, other things that, that, folks may say are conspiratorial or not providing enough evidence and you know fact-based reporting then he's saying well bitcoin i want to i want to remove capital gains from bitcoin and you know bitcoin has a lot of good proponents that i would personally agree with but i am concerned that you know our mission here to try to tell more people on the left is that you can uh You know, you can keep your your left progressive values, whatever, and and still use Bitcoin or still have it in your portfolio or whatever, trying to normalize the conversation, right? Right. Not have it be, you have to be a vaccine skeptic. You have to be on a carnivore diet. You have to, you know, have these different views to hold Bitcoin. You know, it's for everyone. And again, we create such unique problems in the United States because you talk to the average citizen in South Africa about Bitcoin. There's some of this, but they use it in a completely different way peer-to-peer network. And it's very, very different, right? We, we like to politicize everything. So that's some of my concern, as well as these candidates touting Well, like that, him, I- uh, they have a right to, but-
1: I had, uh, grew up in a family where um, my father was the first African-American um, vice chair of the Democratic National Committee. He was a deputy mayor to Mayor Koch. He was the first black secretary of state in New York. So, you know, coming behind that, it the way to uh, deflect the criticism that it's nepotism is to come up with workable, sensible ideas and to work really hard. And um, I don't know what work he ever did that made him think that he could be appointed to the United States Senate. And particularly when his cousin Caroline had already indicated that she was interested and, um, You know, I had experiences that I thought were more translatable, but the, but the, um, uh, the, these side issues have turned his campaign into, uh, kind of like a circus. And, um, if he doesn't watch it, he's going to be labeled the democratic, uh, George Sandoz because, uh, it's, it's so outlandish and, um, You know, I don't want to be mean-spirited about it, but uh, with all the frivolity and publicity and and the back and forth that goes on, these are very serious times. We as a country are somewhat in disarray. We don't really know what our foreign policy is. Um, It's interesting. uh, uh, Yesterday was the 70th anniversary of the agreement between North and South Korea to end the fighting and the South Koreans built a statue to Harry Truman because that president sent troops to help the South uh, Koreans when they were attacked by North Korea with aid from uh, China and the Soviet union. Um, we don't do that anymore. We hedge <laughs> and the, the, the uh, politicians have, um, you know, uh, our hedging policy, uh, as opposed to hedging funds, which is what hedging should be for. And I think it's, um, kind of outrageous, um, that at times we have to put up with these sideshows, which I think are, uh, ridiculous.
0: Yeah. And I, I think one of the reasons I, this opened the floodgates and, and I'm not, you know, saying specifically on him, cause there are, there are points that I think, Bobby Kennedy raises that are important that no other candidate is talking about, more so for the reasons you've mentioned, where like you're not supposed to talk about this, you're not supposed to mention it. I personally think then he kind of keeps going, right? It's like, alright right, all right, let's let, let, let's figure this out here. A couple of these points, yes, you know, maybe a few others, no. Mm-hmm. Um, but but one thing I think a lot of candidates saw is obviously in Trump's presidency. And I'm sure there's different bits and pieces here previous to this, with the Tea Party and so on and so forth, um, throughout history where campaigns are focusing on the age of social media. They're focusing on things that Trump said. And this is one of my firm beliefs is that there are many things in the United States, and I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on this, where we can't really create laws around. Um, some people will say, how was how Trump allowed to get away with this? How is Trump or how is Biden allowed to get, you know, whatever, whatever they say, right? There's many things that exist that there aren't clear cut rules about what you can and can't say on a campaign. They're not clear cut rules about what you can and can't do. It's about interpretation you know, lawsuits may come down 10, 20 years from now, there's executive orders, there's all of these things. Personally, I think Trump really pushed the envelope on a lot of this. And so for me, it's like, you can't really create laws about being a good human being. You can't create laws around what is right and moral in some contexts. Yes. But I think people are looking for how are these people able to do this? And for me, it's like, I think as a nation, we're kind of sick. Like you said, these are, these are dark and troubled times. And I think people have to decide for themselves, how are they going to lead and live their lives? Because in a lot of parts, you know, we're thinking who created Trump, who created, you know, was it, was it the the populace? Was it Trump? Was it the people behind Trump? When did this start? And a lot of times people got to look in, inside themselves. And we see a lot of campaigns that are motivated by fear mongering, by hate, by calling out different groups, whatever the case may be. And that's, that's become the norm. Um, both sides do it a little bit. Um, but I'm deeply concerned about kind of the, the Trump camp and what was created out of that. But I'm curious your own, your own thoughts on this. It's really hard for people to run noble campaigns. I don't know if that's too cheesy to say, but um, I don't know if that era is gone. Hi everyone, hope you're enjoying the episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bitbox. Now Bitbox is a hardware wallet that's open source, incredibly secure and easy to use, and it's what I'm using to safely secure my Bitcoin in cold storage. Now I know self-custodying Bitcoin can really be intimidating, but Bitbox is designed for ease of use without compromising on security. It's USB-C compatible and allows you to easily backup and restore your private keys with a micro SD card, which is really cool. Now you can purchase the BitBox using the promo code TPB at the link found in the show notes for 5% off your purchase. And I really want to thank BitBox for their support of the podcast. And I'm really excited about this new partnership. All right, I'll let you get back to the episode now.
1: President Eisenhower once said, you can't legislate morality, but Mm -hmm. you can legislate protections against the immorality of others. So in other words, you can't uh, stop Former President Trump from saying what he wants to say, uh, you 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 can't um, stop the harassment. I think of uh, Budweiser because they tried a uh, commercial that appealed to the LGBTIA uh, plus community, and and it, the product was. Now being totally rejected by people who actually like the product, but now are angry because they tried to market it to uh, an obvious uh, group of people that live in in our society. And um, uh, you can't stop people from deciding that they don't want to buy a product because they don't like who else is being sold to. But at the same time, um, you you feel as if, if that goes on, what's going to be the next issue that a group of people gang up and decide they're not going to, uh, uh, recognize it. And then, uh, in a sense, impede the opportunity for commerce to go on. So for instance, um, what if this uh, situation now where these different, um, uh, local governments, particularly in the South, and particularly in Florida, are banning books. They don't want any conversation about the fact that there was slavery before the Civil War. Civil War was just a fight between the North and the South. There are 28 school districts in the state of Texas who've described the migration of Africans from Africa as being invited to come to the United States to help do chores on the farms. How ridiculous and shocking is that, that children are reading that um, and uh, growing up, maybe creating a generation that really thinks that there's colorblindness all around this country. And um, I think that uh, this is why, uh, you, you know, I get dissuaded when you hear uh you know, the same ravings of President Trump, it's a witch hunt, it's this, it's that. Um, But somehow he always seems to be mixed up in it, you know. So uh, uh, if it was a witch hunt, then uh, when they came and they asked for the documents back, maybe should have given them back. And I don't even know that it's all that important, uh, you know, about the documents. But I think his biggest peril is the investigation about January 6th, because he openly egged on the crowd and came within really at times a few feet of a major, major tragedy, which, as bad as the attack on the Capitol was, it didn't turn into a situation where perhaps a, a vice president gets killed or something. Um, and and
0: yeah, were they you know saying they want to go after Nancy Pelosi's head and yeah, uh, and, you know, and different, you know, different you things were said and yeah,
1: well, you 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 get that mob rule, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what will happen. You'll get that. Right?
0: Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I I, really wish a lot of politicians, I don't care what, what side they're on, whatever. I mean, there's a whole, I, I think people underestimate too. There's a whole, you know, percentage of the population that are quite frankly, throw their hands up. And it's like, we're, we're facing the same problems, right? You've got, you know, Ron DeSantis down there saying he's going to sue, you know, Budweiser and this and that. Uh, when people are starving in Florida. Right. When, when people need healthcare, like these practical things that you, you were kind of suggesting, maybe campaigns should talk about this a little bit, and they just don't. So we're kind of in that era where even campaigns aren't talking about the basic stuff. And I really wish people would approach politics in the way that you're suggesting when they're running campaigns. You know, start off maybe trying out being a little honest and, and start off talking about real issues. And I don't know how many people I've talked to, and again, whether it, it happened in reality or not, especially on the Bitcoin side that said, oh yeah, I voted for Obama in, in 2008. I, you know, I, I voted for Obama. That, that messaging and the way that campaign was run, people might feel differently after the fact, um, but, but those kind of campaigns seem to, to not exist anymore. And that's, that's deeply troubling for me.
1: Yeah, I think the uh, Obama campaign was a very positive campaign and hope and possibility. Uh, uh, and that's what he talked about. And originally his opponents on the Republican side of the aisle were extremely complimentary of him because they really thought that the candidate they would face in the general election was Hillary Clinton. Then, mm-hmm. when Obama wins the nomination and they tried to turn on him, by that time he had a head of steam and he had the whole country really reveling to this very positive notion of how we could run government and, and how um, issues that confront us can be addressed with a new administration and he won. Um, I don't know what next year's campaign is going to be like, but I would not be surprised if one of the candidates, instead of engaging in the acrimony, which went on in 2020, just laid out the positions and, you know, spoke to the critical issues and maybe even might criticize the other candidates when they think that they've missed uh, the, the point, but uh, it, it's going to be very interesting to see how this, uh, how this actually plays out. Uh, you'll have a presidential candidate running uh, at the same time that they're under indictment, and you'll also have a president who is besieged with calls inside the party to maybe reconsider whether or not he should run for reelection given some of the things that have gone on recently. And, um, he seems ready to continue on, uh, fighting, but, uh, 24 hours in politics is a lifetime. We'll see what happens. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Do you think, um, how real do you think that that suggestion is within the party? I remember originally a lot of insiders at the party being kind of open about it, whether it was public leaking or just, you know, kind of being frivolous and saying, let's let's get this out there, was suggesting that Kamala would be uh, the candidate going into this race, right? And there's been quite a few pivots or that, that someone else would be at least that Biden's going to be a one-term president and that's it. And a lot of voters, myself, uh, remember that and I think are a little bit concerned about, The way they're heading into this election, and deeply concerned about who could step in if Biden's not the the nominee or or some or not you know elected at the end or someone else. Kind of concerned about what's coming from from the other side. So, do you think those calls within the party are
1: are still happening? I don't think that they are verbose. I don't think that you're hearing a lot about it. Um, I think that many members of the party are bracing. Ourselves, we expect the president to uh, run for reelection and we uh, would campaign for him and help him try to win. But you know, there've just been some uh, some issues in 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 terms of uh, just uh, uh, handling the oil prices and and um, you know bringing change in terms of the environment but maybe trying to rush it you know the the answer to everything uh seemed to be the electric cars now Mm -hmm. (laughs) all you hear about are lithium batteries blowing up and and um, dangerous situations in the midst of um uh, hurricanes in florida a few months ago Mm -hmm. and it uh a lot of this is traced back to the perhaps we are hurrying These solutions and not significantly testing them, and these were solutions that were promoted by the sitting president. So he's going to have to explain that or find a an alternative that um, fulfills his promise, but at the same time is safe for people around it. Right, right.
0: Yeah, and there's some very practical things too. Um, You know, and I'm not sure if you've heard all of the different arguments and I'll, I'll make sure to send it over to you in, in case you haven't, there's a lot of interesting, um, you know, research and articles about the environmental impacts of Bitcoin. Um, you know, there's so many different tangents been going here, but, but Greenpeace has been very hell bent against it, you know, saying it's boiling our oceans basically, but there's actually quite a few practical um, things that have been happening with Bitcoin mining, for instance, because it's one of the tightest markets in, in terms of actually profiting. Um, and really, you know their're their data centers There's been a lot of interesting things happening in New York, and I have to commend Senator Gillibrand working across the aisle with Senator Lumas on um, crypto legislation um, you know in the Senate, which has been very interesting to watch, and we'll see how that continues to to pan out. But in terms of the environmental impact, there's actually a lot of Bitcoin miners that are getting into methane flaring, so they're actually capturing this methane and repurposing it for Bitcoin data centers. So CO2 is way less harmful than methane to the actual environment. So there's very practical market-based solutions that are actually happening because Bitcoin mining can go up and down, you know, at the drop of a hat. Whereas you can't, you know, turn on and off maybe an Amazon data center or a Netflix data center, right? <laughs> People will be up in arms, like, well, my Netflix went down. What are you talking about? Or a hospital or a school. But Bitcoin mining, you can. So there's so many interesting incentives. Market-based incentives, right? Because I think too often folks on the left say, well, it's the right thing to do, so we should do blank. Well, unfortunately, that's not the way the world works. Bitcoin actually is able to say it's the right thing to do, and there's a market incentive for it because this renewable energy source is cheaper than this fossil fuel source, or methane capturing is cheaper than than this. So there's a lot of interesting things. And the White House um, and those on the left, and obviously Senator Senator Elizabeth Warren, we've basically said no you know, we're, we're not going to realistically look into that, but their hand is being forced a little bit to start to look at it. And it's been starting at the state level and the local level. When people are actually saying, this is bringing jobs to the community. This is actually helping grid stability because we're able to, to purchase that excess renewable energy. So it's actually building out renewable energy in ways that hasn't been seen before, where there's actually incentive to do so, not just government subsidies. So there's all this interesting stuff Coming out of Bitcoin, um, they—if you haven't seen already—I'd love to send over to you because I think once people start seeing these practical things, it's almost counterintuitive, but it's really cool to see, and it becomes a lot harder for people to just give blanket statements that Bitcoin is bad for the environment or Bitcoin is harmful. There's so much nuance, and I think that's what's lost in political discourse today. Is gray areas are 99% of the world we live in. Like you said, it's not as simple as saying. Electric cars are the solution. Well, where does the production start, right? You
1: know, if I could turn the tables for for a second, Trey, have you found leaders in other industry who could find their way to you know taking the padlock off the door and letting you come in and explain to them the positive values and the way it would actually be assistance to people by uh, adopting it in certain areas and areas that would um, that would really benefit the consumer.
0: Yeah. And there's been a lot of work done. And there are many, many folks that are better to speak on it than, than me. I try to have this serve as a platform to invite some of those folks on, right? But there's a lot of energy producers, um, a lot of oil companies, a lot of renewable energy sources, a lot of Bitcoin miners that are actually focused on doing this. So a lot of energy companies are realizing, oh, we can you know, hit some of our ESG goals, we can reduce our, you know, methane footprints, whatever the case may be, and we can make some money mining Bitcoin because we have all this excess energy and and we don't, it's just being wasted, right? There's stranded energy. So that's one source. So there is a lot of folks that are doing this work day in and day out. And I'd say one other thing too, I'm not sure if you've seen much about big news on the um, Bitcoin ETF race. So BlackRock, obviously the largest uh, financial institution in the world. In terms of what they're actually servicing and holding they they've applied for a bitcoin etf now we'll see at the end of the day what happens with that there's speculation on both sides that oh only one etf has never actually gone through there's high likelihood but the sec has uh, rejected many other etfs in the past couple of years as relates to to bitcoin spot spot etfs specifically so a lot of folks are seeing blackrock giving the nod so to speak saying just a few years ago they were saying this is just for criminals this isn't any asset or anything worth even looking yeah. at or bothering. It's harmful to where they're saying today that Bitcoin is hope, which is insane, that that pivot. I don't know when the first, you know, this was a few weeks ago uh, compared to four years ago. So obviously people are starting to see, well, inflation is getting out of control. So a lot of wealthy folks, I think, and these, these market makers and managers are saying this might actually be a good way to retain and, and store some of my my wealth over time you know they've got gold etfs and other things they're starting to right. see it and they actually call right. it digital gold BlackRock recently so i think that um, this etf rush there's a lot of discourse amongst the bitcoin community as well i'm kind of mixed myself on is that good for bitcoin is it not does it kind of create uh, more paper bitcoin rather than people actually holding the asset right and all these different rich conversations um so there are many industry folks that are starting to see a lot of mid-level folks too so you might not see a ceo saying it outright but you'll see <laughs> a director level person that's having some side conversations preparing for the event when they do open the doors to bitcoin when they start introducing it into their their financial portfolio or whatever the case may be or they start in you know mentioning it at local government right, <laughs> mayors or uh pension boards or you know school districts energy companies so That has definitely been happening the next couple of years, and I think it'll continue to happen, which is why I'm such a big proponent of making sure that we don't politicize Bitcoin and we try to have it be known as a tool that can be good. It's not going to solve every problem on the face of the planet. That's impossible, but it's something that we can start to address these concerns. So long story short, uh, yes, there are many folks doing this hard work. I think more and more you'll see some of this kind of out, out in the open um, for, for people to look into.
1: And what do you think people like myself who has access, you know, to, uh, a lot of people from time to time, I'm on a radio show and, um, I get interviewed a lot, that sort of thing, uh, maybe myself and let's say other people who are in that, uh, that group that you were talking about, they may not be the CEOs, but they're the In the mid-size, they they have roles to play and they do have a capacity to influence situations. Um, How would we operate or what would be your thoughts on uh, how uh, we, we could get you into a fair forum where there'd be a proper evaluation of what's being recommended?
0: Yeah, well, first of all, one thing I'm going to do after this interview is, is give, you some, give you some more resources to, to look into. And also, there's many, many, many folks in the community that are able to talk about Bitcoin in a way that is, you know, we can target specifically what industry you're talking about, what business are you talking about, right? There's, finance, there's Bitcoin financial service industries that can talk to small family offices, right, and say, hey, this is how you can incorporate Bitcoin into your portfolios, into your small office. There's environmentalists that are talking to politicians or talking to groups about the the net benefit of Bitcoin. There's energy partners and Bitcoin miners that are able to talk to the exons and shells of the world and speak their language, speak an energy language that's outside of a ESG narrative only or something like that, right? So there's many, many folks that be happy to connect with. Um, We'll be sure to loop into this conversation. But I think, oh, you're fine. Uh, I think starting the conversation with just you know, making sure under people understand why are why are we advocating for this? And one of the easiest places to start, I think, is you know, look at what's been happening since the Great Recession, even before this. Right, a lot of people um, have been concerned with inflation. A lot of people are concerned with you know U- U.S. dollar dominance in the world. A lot of people are concerned with a lot of these different things. Um, a lot of people are concerned. I think they should be just as concerned on the left with. Uh, you know, people shutting down bank accounts with censorship, with all of these things. There's so many different arguments to be made for why incorporating Bitcoin into your portfolio, or if you have a financial services company, if you have, there's so many things that can be built on top of Bitcoin, utilizing Bitcoin, all of these different things. There's so many cool stories uh, happening in this ecosystem. And, you know, there's a lot of things happening in AI as well with Bitcoin. So a lot of businesses you'll probably find would love to talk about AI, right? And too many businesses will say uh, Bitcoin, crypto, all the same thing, right? And I'm not here to argue the merits of other cryptos necessarily because some are more nefarious and fraudulent than others. Let's put it that way. Because it's still a bit of the Wild West in terms of crypto. A lot of people think of FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried with, in terms of fraudulent campaign spending, all of the news there. They've unfortunately lumped Bitcoin into that uh, since that event, right? So I think first and foremost, it's helping people understand what is crypto or what is, you know, what is Ethereum versus what is Bitcoin or what, you know, just understanding kind of the basics of what it is and then talking about those different use cases because there's many, many different use cases. So, you know, I I think what I I absolutely love is that from day one, it seems hearing any new thing, you know, you've obviously had experience in leadership, but hearing any new thing, hearing any new technology, hearing about Bitcoin, it wasn't like, oh, that's horrible. We have to fight against it. It's a danger to humanity. It's like, huh, well, these same problems have been, you know, maybe this can be a tool. Let's, let's look into it. I think that's a very level-headed way to start. And I don't know many folks that start looking into it and dismiss it outright. Now there are criticisms to be had. One of my things that I think about a lot is, you know, from the left, we talk a lot about wealth inequality, right? And that continues to grow. Well, that's been continuing to grow based on this current standard that we've been operating based on stock prices continuing to elevate when average wages do not meet that same pace, right? We can talk about money printing, we can talk about inflation, we can talk about global trade, all of these things, right? Bitcoin kind of comes in and has those conversations, but can I say that Bitcoin, if we, if everybody starts using Bitcoin and holding Bitcoin, that's gonna fix income inequality? No, it's not. Uh, do I think it can fix the help address some of the concerns in the system with how this income inequality is generated? And making it a little bit harder for these CEOs to make, you know, 300, you know, 3,000 X their entry line uh, employees. Yeah, I think it might make it a little bit harder for some of that easy money, so to speak, to run as rampant as it is in businesses. So um, the fact that you're open to it, that you're a voice in the Democratic Party, uh, gives me hope because a lot of folks from the left have just completely disregarded it. And like you said, aren't even focused on Real issues at this point, and and quite frankly, from the from the right, it's just disgusting. It's a, it's it's a circus as well um, since the Trump administration. So that's not me saying that that isn't. But on the left, I'm very disappointed because it's supposed to be a party that's built on helping people um, and helping the poor in our communities, the least of these in our communities, and things like that.
1: Well, I, there I would
0: are, argue that Bitcoin can do some of that.
1: There are a lot of people um, in that sphere who. Um, are suspicious of government and they have very much a right to be. Uh, you look back at some of the activities of the FBI during the civil rights movement and what they tried to do to Dr. King and, uh, you know, other things were going on. And, and they are um, maybe a generation or two generations beyond that, but they haven't forgotten these things and tend to, you know, uh, it, uh, except sort of paranoid feelings about uh, the government. And the bad thing about that is that if some of the people who they admire the most had thought that way, none of the gains that we've received would have been undertaken because they would have just not done anything. And um, and the idea of change uh, frightens a lot of people who generally... Some of them call themselves progressive, but they're progressive within the realm of what, you know, know, progressivity has been for uh, the last, you know, 15 or 20 years, but like any other movement or any other uh, political group or even advocacy group, as time goes on, you embrace the change and, uh, and, and and you embraced some of the vehicles for change. So, you know, the, the um, uh, uh, Dr. King realized at a certain point that television had overcome America. All of a sudden, you know, in the 1940s, maybe, you know, three or four percent of the population had a television. By 1960, everybody had at least one. And. So what he did was he staged these marches, knowing sometimes they'd be disrupted, knowing that people would get beaten up and knowing that they'd get thrown in jail. But he manufactured a product that the whole country saw. When the country had to look at what their country was doing, they were um, they were revolted by it. And then you started to see the civil rights legislation and, you know, a lot of good things came from that. But you know, the the television got the nickname the boob tube because people didn't think it was going to work. They didn't think, even though they'd gone to the movies, they didn't think that there was a product that could show a movie in your home or a newscast or something like that. And so I think that um, uh, you all are really to be congratulated because... Though you are fighting against an historic standard of rejection to uh to to new ideas um I think at the same time you're on the precipice of combining it with technology where it could be very very helpful for a lot of people uh who 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 would need it in in the next few years
0: yeah, and that's the that's the hope and that's another angle is that. In the u.s context a lot of people haven't experienced hyperinflation yet hopefully they never will but hyperinflation they'd never experienced like this community of afghani women that were not uh, afghan women that were not able to actually access and have bank accounts um, under law in their country they were able to hold bitcoin and travel across lines when they needed to to escape the taliban and still have some wealth that they could, tra- you know, they could transfer into local currency. They could continue to hold, whatever the case may be. Not enough people are hearing these stories. We're in, we're in the but U.S. But that is in a
1: ringing endorsement of what a technology could be used in the most positive of ways to yeah. free people from the, their oppressive conditions. I mean, it 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 compels us to really take a look at, at how it works. And to, you know, critique when necessary, but at the same time, to uh, endorse the fact that a lot of good could really come from from
0: this. Yeah, absolutely. I, I 100% agree. Um, uh, th- this was so much fun, Governor Patterson. Um, <laughs> I want to be mindful of your time as well. And uh, I, I look forward to, to keeping in touch. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunities here. I think you're talking with some interesting people still to this date that, that might like to learn a little bit more. Um, I think regardless, they're going to hear more and more about Bitcoin. I mean, it's 14 years old. Um, it's only been growing uh, every year. Some people are amazed that the US hasn't squashed it previously when they maybe could have, let's say it this way. Um, it's, it's global. It's a global phenomenon, a global money, a global asset, all of these things. So many inter- industries are interested in it. So I think people are going to continue to hear about it. Um, you can always reach out to me if there's any questions and I can be happy to connect people because I think people are going to keep hearing about it and they're going to start being more and more interested in it. You know, they're going to hear about it for, for better or for worse. But some of those for worse narratives are being drowned out by people that know kind of the ins and outs. Um, you know, it's not just this thing used for criminals. Um, the U S dollar is used way more by criminals than, than Bitcoin. Um, so a lot of these arguments fall off on of their face. There's a lot of environmental stuff that's going on with Bitcoin. That's really cool. Those arguments are tougher to hold up. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. And, uh, fingers crossed, we don't get too, too political with Bitcoin in this next cycle, but you know, that's kind of part of the territory, I think. So we'll, we'll be here to try to combat against that as well. Um, and make sure people, know what it is. And just like you said, it can be a, it, it's still an experiment. It is, you know, it's been around 14 years, but this can be a tool that we think can help a lot of people. Um, but there's a lot of ways we want to, we want to implement that and we want to actually show people how it works and, and what it is. So, you know, happy to, to be here to help in any way I can do that as well.
1: Well, you know, when you read about the conflict that uh, Thomas Edison went through when he's trying to, um, uh, uh, establish electricity in the light bulb, um, and all of the difficulty that he went through. And then when he passes away in 1984 or 1934, um, um, they wanted to put all the lights out in the country for one minute in honor of his passing. And the uh, Secretary of the Interior told President Roosevelt, you can't do that. The electricity in this country is so precious we can't waste it for one minute, and once we get it turned off, we may not get it turned back on in time. Mm. <laughs> and so they didn't have a moment of um, of darkness uh, honoring Thomas Edison. They had a moment of silence, right. and uh, oh, and funny. I I think that that is you know um, pertains to a lot of what we've talked about, and and I think uh, most of it, uh, w- w- which is where I wish all of you well, is the perseverance and the uh, keeping your eyes on the prize. And always, you know, the little, um, you know, uh, funny sayings that people like to repeat, but there actually is something behind it that if you can envision it, it can become a reality. And uh, that was um, certainly uh, something that, that I struggled with as a, uh, as a younger person and uh, actually had um, been turned down for a job during the summer once when I was, you know, a teenager. Well, I was actually 19 or 20 years old. I was turned down by uh, a man who was married to one of the special education teachers who helped me. So she could advocate, advocate for me in the schools, but her, she couldn't advocate to her husband that I could pack lunchboxes for children at a day camp. And uh, I went through a a real period of, you know, doubting that I'd ever be able to get anywhere. And then, you know, there's that moment um, where I went to see a professor I really liked and I shared my problems with him. And he said, the problem with you is that you're turning these experiences into negative energy, like you're hurting yourself. What you've got to do is to turn it into positive energy and do things that benefit other people. And then you won't even have to worry about yourself. You, you'll, you'll be fine. And that was you know, a turning point in my life. But it also was a turning point in the way I observe things, um, in enabling me to be very positive about the um, uh, new ideas, the implementation of them, and the uh, results that we can get from it that benefit humanity.
0: Yeah. And that's, that's what we're trying to do here, right? We're saying a lot of people are feeling politics are dark. Uh, Economy is dark and confusing. Global affairs is dark. Um, uh, Bitcoin is one of these things that every year that goes by more and more use cases are found. It's kind of a, a technology based on hope, based on freedom, based on a lot of these things that I think are a perfect fit for the United States and what we claim to be as a country. It's something that's for everyone. And I think it's only a matter of time. Um, hopefully, ideally, before we see AOC walking the streets of Brooklyn talking about Bitcoin, talking about, hey, for this community, you know, the global financial system has turned its back on you. Your local bank has turned its back on you. You can't open a bank account. You can't access it. You can access Bitcoin, right? And again, that's just a that's just an example. I think everyone will be talking about it at some point. But it's a technology of hope, and to hear your openness about it has left me feeling a little bit more hopeful that there may be some other leaders out there that can be open to new ideas or open to things that could be better for humanity because clearly we've got a lot of issues and a lot of people talk about the issues but i don't know how many great solutions we have in this moment today and that can be really hopeless bitcoin is something that offers a lot of hope and there are other technologies that will as well and i think the more we talk about it openly and honestly, uh, the better. So I, I really enjoyed this conversation, I'm, you know, hearing your perspectives on this.
1: Well, thank you so much for um, <clears throat> inviting me. Uh, I enjoyed doing this.